And remember, our goal in this series is to expand, both broaden and deepen our relationship with God using the different types of psalms, prayers and songs recorded in the book of Psalms, uh, to draw all of our experience, all of our emotions, all of our needs into God's presence. And that includes, as we'll see this morning, the imprecatory psalms. Um, There's an interesting juxtaposition in our service today. We opened with a psalm of blessing. Bless, 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 bless. Imprecatory is the opposite. It's a prayer of cursing. And so I've invited a friend to help us with this this morning. Um, Lindsay Kennedy is a part of a church up north in the Bothell and Woodenville area called Imprint, but more importantly, he's a close friend of mine, uh, and he's a, um, he's a scholastic friend of mine. Most of our relationship is the trading of articles, the asking for resources, the working through ideas of what the Bible means, and so I couldn't really think of anyone better uh, to burden with the task of taking us through such a difficult topic. Uh, but to be honest, I'm just really glad he's here, and I hope you all have your best behavior on because I want him to realize that he's never supposed to leave, okay? So let's uh, welcome Lindsay, and you can open up your Bibles or your Bible app to Psalm 109. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the, the welcome. As Justin said, we are good friends, Uh, although I did doubt it when he asked me if I wanted to preach on the imprecatory Psalms. Definitely called our friendship into question, uh, because it is quite a challenge. Welcome everyone here as well on video. So before we begin, I would like to pray and ask for God's help, because this is definitely a challenging topic, and we're going to be looking at a challenging portion of scripture as well. So we need him to direct us and direct our thinking about it. So let's pray. Father God, we come to you as people who need to learn how to pray. We don't even know most properly how to address you. And so we ask that you would show us today what we are to do with prayers like Psalm 109. We ask that you would guide us as we look at your word that your spirit would open our minds, convict us of sin, challenge us, and lead us to the truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as Justin said, in this series, we're looking at these Psalms as a way to understand how we are to pray to God, how they can broaden our relationship with God. The fact is we need help in doing that. We need help from God in learning how to pray to him, how to address him, how to have a relationship with him. As it is the case with any kind of relationship, more importantly, our relationship with God, we need to know how do I relate to him. The Psalms, because they are a part of God's word, they are actually inspired prayers. They're not just uh, humans' prayers that we can look at and, and glean and disagree and whatever we might want to do with them, they're not just examples of prayers, but they are inspired prayers. They're God's word as much as they are man's word as well. They're man's word to God, but they're also, because they're part of the Bible, God's word to us. So we can agree with Paul when he says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
And here's the thing, though. When we come to Psalms like Psalm 109, it really puts that verse to the test. Because here we find an example, like Justin said, not of blessing, but of cursing. In what way are prayers of cursing, imprecatory prayers, in what way are they profitable to us for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness? Are we more righteous if we pray like this? Or are we more righteous if we reject prayers like this? In what way are, how are we supposed to relate to these prayers? So before we ask that question, I really want to just look at this psalm together. This is really a test case. There are uh, imprecations throughout the psalms, but Psalm 109 has a very extended imprecatory section. So let's just read it together and be confronted with the challenge this morning. So Psalm 109, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity, uh, any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers before the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that it is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as a cloak. With my mouth I will give thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Okay, so heavy words, right? There's, there's plenty in there that makes us uncomfortable, I think. I don't need a show of hands, but I'm probably 
uh, quite confident that there are many lines in there that were uncomfortable for you. Here we have Psalm 109. This is a Psalm of David, and in this Psalm, David describes what appears actually to be a courtroom scene. If you notice the first few verses, it talks about an individual who's encircled with words of hate. There's a crowd that are accusing him falsely. They're making claims about him that are not true. They're speaking lies about him. And yet, the imprecation is directed specifically to one person. It does go on at the end and says, let all my accusers have this to them. But it, it specifically channels it all towards one person, primarily. Now, some of your Bibles might actually have a quotation mark around most of this section here. And that would be that the translators have come to the conclusion that this is not the prayer of David. This is the prayer of his enemies. Right, so David's saying, hey, everyone's surrounding me and accusing me, and here's what they're saying. They're saying, may his name be cut off and all the rest. But there's really no basis for doing that in the text. Uh, when you just translate it just straight as it is, it just seems like there's really a shift where it's not switching the person, it's just switching the direction of uh, the accusation from the group that's opposing him to an individual that's specifically guilty. In fact, the New Testament reads this, as the prayer of the individual who's suffering and saying that when he's saying may, his, uh, may another take his office, he's directing that to the enemy. Okay, so really this, this is all the words of David here, even the imprecation. And even if it weren't, we find plenty of them elsewhere in the Psalms. So this is a launching pad to really discuss this topic of imprecation. Notice what David prays, may someone accuse him. He's saying, you know, I'm being accused, may someone accuse this person. Basically, everything he's directing towards me, may it be directed back towards him. May his prayers be rejected. May his life be cut off. May another take his position. May his wife and children be without provision. May his line be cut off entirely. May his possessions be seized, and may his curses be turned back upon him. You have just experienced an imprecatory psalm. It's not very comfortable uh, as we read through the Bible, we read through the Psalms, we look to them for comfort, we look to them uh, for examples of prayer, and we come across verses like this and Psalms like this, and sometimes we just skim over them, sometimes we, we feel uncomfortable, we don't know what to do with them. And so the challenge this morning is to ask the question, well, what are we supposed to do with prayers like this? Is this just an, a relic of another time? As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he wrote this wonderful book on the Psalms, by the way, as he said, every attempt to pray these psalms seems doomed to failure. His point is when we encounter psalms like this, it, it seems like there's no way that we could possibly pray these. Interestingly, he does go on and say, here's how you can pray them. But he says the first appearance, it looks as if there's no way that we could incorporate this into our faith, right? How can we be followers of Christ who said to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you? How can we do that on one hand and then also curse those people, on the other hand, how can we do that? Should we do that? So with most of the prayers so far, the Psalms, we have said, ask the question, how can we pray these? How can we lament? How can we have hope? How can we praise God? With the imprecations, we have to ask the question, should we even do that? Before we ask how, we say, we have to ask the question, should we? Is it ever right for a Christian to call down a curse? Does this contradict Christ's teaching that we love our enemies? And not only should we do this, but what does it do to us? When we pray prayers like this, what does it do to us as a, as a follower of Jesus? 
Uh, even if I was to justify these prayers, wouldn't this make me an uglier person if I prayed prayers like this? So we ask the question, how should we think of these imprecations? And the fact is, throughout church history, there's been a number of different approaches and views. People have disagreed, understandably so. Uh, and I won't give you all the details, but there are a number of ways that people resolve this question, a number of different answers they come to. And I just want to give you a few examples. One is C.S. Lewis, who also wrote a great book on the Psalms. Uh, he took the conclusion, really, that we should not be praying imprecatory Psalms. He, in fact, called them diabolical. So he said, this is sort of an example of where the psalmist just went too far, like where his human nature just took over, really, and, and that there's no one who should really ever pray a prayer like this. Even, even David shouldn't have prayed this prayer, that these would be unworthy of God's people. Now, when we compare them to the teaching of Jesus, it, it makes some sense why he would have that instinct, right? But, but there's other ways of resolving this question. Some have argued throughout church history as well that these prayers really reflect the Old Testament ethics, ethical system that's been replaced by Jesus. So, in other words, it was okay back then, but we should look at this and say, that's not for me today. Jesus came and said that, uh, like what, what Paul said actually in Romans 12, he said, bless those who persecute you. That's what we should be doing. We shouldn't be praying these prayers. Maybe back then it was okay, but it certainly isn't okay anymore now that we have Jesus' teaching. And then others go maybe a step more towards the tolerant side where they say, well, these are therapeutically helpful, but they're not ideal. So you might find yourself in a position like the psalmist where I need to pray this. I need to get this off my chest. I need to vent. But God tolerates it. But then he says, now, now leave that behind. Uh, it's like maybe you've, you've had this experience before where you write someone a letter just to get everything off your chest and then you tear it up. And it's this experience of, okay, that I should never have said those things. That's why I wrote them down. That's why I threw them away. Maybe the prayers like this are, are a form of that. Again, I think there's some truth to, to maybe all of these in some way, but I want to present a different way, a more challenging way, a perhaps more uncomfortable way that we should actually incorporate these into our faith. As a, a good Christian boy, I was raised Christian, uh, I was taught that I should never say God damn. Right? I, I even feel uncomfortable saying it right now. Right, that seems so antithetical to my good Christian boy upbringing to ever say that phrase. This is probably like the third time I've ever said it in my life. And I'm going to say it again, is I was taught you should not say, God damn you. That's a curse, right? That's literally a curse word. It belonged in that category of words that I should never say as a, as a good Christian. And effectively, that is what imprecations are. They're saying, may God curse this person. May God bring his curse, his damnation upon them, his judgment upon them. And so I want to go and sort of do this uphill battle of arguing really that imprecations are an integral part of a healthy relationship with God. Despite all of that, despite everything I've said, there is a place for them in the Christian faith, I believe. I've come to this conclusion through a lot of wrestling, and I'm still on the journey of trying to understand how and when we should pray these. But I want to give you the, the, what I've learned up to this point. The ironic thing is that for us, we read these prayers and we feel uncomfortable. We see them as problems even. But to biblical authors, these prayers were actually answers. They were responses to something. 
right? To us, we look at them when we say, what am I supposed to do with this? To them, they prayed them as a, as a way of answering a solution, uh, answering a problem. And the problem that they were answering was really the problem of injustice, the problem of unlawful violence. If you read the Psalms, they are filled with imprecations. Time and time again, the person speaks of their own self or maybe of someone else who is suffering unjustly, someone who's being persecuted, someone who is suffering violence towards them, whether it's words or actions, uh, physical violence, sometimes even military violence. And they are praying on behalf of that person and saying, this is unjust and God, I want you to step in. Maybe in the past, we, we would have found this harder to relate to, uh, but in 2020, I think that we've encountered many forms of injustice right on, on our doorsteps, in this country even. We have experienced different forms of injustice that, that have been overwhelming, right? That we, we just look at them and think, I don't know what to do. Even Christians are disagreeing with the correct response to them. Uh, people that I used to find much agreement with in my in my upbringing and my friends and family, I, I'm finding myself uh, surrounded by disagreement, even amongst believers, of how we should respond. But the one thing that many of us or most of us find in common is this sense of we are seeing injustice before our eyes. Uh, for a couple of examples, for me, I had never heard the name of Jeffrey Epstein until I found out everything, or actually we don't really know everything, do we, of what he had done and those who are involved in it. But we know enough to think, that is unjust, and what, what could we possibly do about this? We've seen enough uh, on the surface level even just to know that there, there was this, these unlawful killings of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and others that we just say, this was wrong. However we should respond to this, whatever we should do next, these things on their surface, they are not right. How are we supposed to process this? And this is where... I think the imprecatory psalms can come in and can be part of the solution. What are we supposed to do in our day and age, especially where we are surrounded by information? Uh, it doesn't take long, doesn't take much to encounter bad news, to encounter injustice. Uh, we are filled with information, and, and actually more recent years, I think, we're filled with misinformation. We're being given so much conflicting information that I don't even know how, how I'm supposed to think about something. I don't even know what the truth is. I recently read an article about a, a guy who had written, who had written articles and it, uh, for major newspapers, and it turned out this person was fake, didn't even exist, and that his uh, photograph of his face was computer-generated. And it took experts to figure it out, and I was looking really closely, and you can see some funny lines like in his clothing and his neck, and it was very subtle. And so we're in this day and age where pictures of people are not even real people. And we're surrounded by injustice and confusion. We're facing things where a tweet will not be the solution, where a social media post cannot fix the problems that we're faced with. We need God's spirit. And in this time of confusion, I think we can really begin to experience where the imprecatory Psalms actually give us a part of an answer. They give us some outlet that can be helpful. But before we do that, before we begin to talk about how we should uh, think about them, I want to talk about what they are, like what, what they actually are and what they are not. The first thing I think that we need to understand about the imprecatory psalms and the imprecations in Scripture, the calling down of curses, the first thing is that they, are, as I've mentioned, are responses to unjust violence and suffering. 
when we read them in the Psalms, we don't find people praying curses upon their, their enemies in personal life and sort of personal disputes. We don't find people saying, you know, I encountered someone who wasn't wearing a COVID mask, so, you know, may God curse them, right? Even though sometimes people may look at you that way or you may feel that way about others. It's not, uh, the, the imprecatory Psalms are not given to us so that we can throw them at our political enemies or our enemies on social media. They're not for us to throw at one another. They're responses to unjust violence. They're responses to injustice. Like I said, whether it's uh, violence, physical violence, verbal slander, lies, character assassination, unjust leadership, unjust structures of leadership, whatever it could be, they're directed towards that. They are in response to that. Second, they are uh, calling for divine interruption of this injustice. Okay, they're calling upon God to stop what is happening, whether he stops it now in our lifetime or whether he stops it in the final day where, he re- where Jesus returns. Thirdly, they are the petitions of the innocent and the righteous. You notice time and time again, they are in the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms are responses by someone who is, who is not in a place of power. They're actually someone who is in a place of weakness, person who's being persecuted, and they're being persecuted uh, unjustly, right? They are innocent in this situation. You look at this psalm, for example, and this person is innocent. Now, while there are situations that are quite black and white, I think we all agree we live in a world where it's, it's far from clear who is innocent. And especially if we bring in theology of the Bible, like we even read in the, the uh, catechism, we are, there is none who is righteous. There is none who is innocent. So how could we possibly pray an imprecation as innocent people if we are not ourselves innocent? And here's where I want to make this a little bit more complicated, which is that I believe actually that most of the prayers in the Bible are prophetic prayers of Jesus. So maybe you've not run into this before. Uh, depends on the, the reading that you've done or the church experience you've had. Uh, but this is far from a minority view in terms of church history. Uh, if you were to read the early church fathers, you read Augustine or Augustine, depending how you want to say it, you read uh, Luther, you read even Bonhoeffer, they said the prayers of the Psalms are actually Jesus' prayers, first and foremost. However they work it out, like the math behind that, how that adds up, uh, there's differences of opinion, but I'm convinced of this myself. In fact, if you read Psalm 109, you'll find there's a, a quotation in the New Testament of verse 8, where it says, may another take his office. If you read Acts chapter 1, the apostles quote that, and they say that David was a prophet, and that David was actually not speaking about himself and his suffering, but he was speaking about Judas, and the fact that this is actually an imprecation about Judas, who opposed Jesus. If you read Acts chapter 2, it really unpacks it, how it works, where they say David was not talking about himself, David was talking about the one who was to come. He was a prophet, and he spoke in the words of Jesus when he wrote these prayers kind of mind-blowing. It took me years to come to this conclusion, so I don't expect you all to suddenly change your mind uh, in a couple of minutes here. But if we look at the Psalms this way, we look at the imprecations this way, as if they're Jesus' prayers, how does it change the Psalm? You look at Psalm 109. Jesus, if he's the one praying this, he's saying, I'm surrounded by my enemies. I've been betrayed by someone close to me thrust into the arms of the, unwicked, uh, the, the wicked mob who want to put me to death. And he's saying, I am innocent. 
and you will defend my cause. It changes things, doesn't it? It makes us feel like we can relate to the, the innocence there. Of course, it complicates it too because Jesus is calling down a curse now. Would he ever do that? I mean, C.S. Lewis said no one should pray this, and here I am saying Jesus. This is Jesus' words. And that's as far from C.S. Lewis's position as you could possibly get. But I think that this actually leads a way forward because Jesus himself is the one that will bring justice. Jesus is the one who was most, uh, who was most innocent and who was most acted against, who his enemies were most evil as they acted against him. It was the most wicked act done in history to the most innocent person in history. Who more could pray this prayer than Jesus? And when we see it this way, I think it actually leads a way forward. So here's where I think this starts to get more, uh, sort of break through the ice a little bit with the implications. I think they are ultimately directed against the enemies of Jesus and his kingdom. If we think of it that way, I think it leads us forward. They're not about me and people who hurt me personally, people who upset me on this given day, people who take a different conclusion to me on theology or politics or whatever it could be. They're ultimately directed towards the enemies of Jesus and his kingdom, including his body, the church, but specifically enemies of Jesus. Let me quote some New Testament passages that are very imprecatory-like, just to show that this is not something just in the Old Testament. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says that we do have enemies. It says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is evil behind systems, behind people and what they're doing. The people are not the enemies ultimately. So this is where things get a little bit confusing when we're talking about imprecations and directing curses towards people. But the first step we need to realize is there are spiritual enemies that we can pray against and should pray against. But also the New Testament goes further. And here's where maybe it continues to be uncomfortable. But notice it's directed against enemies of Jesus specifically. Paul says in Galatians 1.9 about those who twist the message of Jesus. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's an imprecation. Paul is calling down a curse upon those who preach a false gospel. Those who are in position of power and authority lead people astray. They tell them about a false Jesus. They tell them about a false salvation. And he says, let them be cursed. Let them stand under God's judgment. Paul even goes a step further when he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if someone rejects Jesus, they are under the curse. It might seem strange to us, but at, at the same time, well, that's who we were, right? Enemies of Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, then we know that before we came to, them, to him, we were his enemies. Another prayer in the New Testament or imprecation, is in Revelation 6. Here we have the body of Jesus, the, the martyrs, those who have suffered for Jesus specifically. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those, our blood, sorry, on those who dwell on the earth? Here they are calling out imprecation. They're saying, God, when will you judge? When will you step in? When will you have vengeance on our behalf? It's basically what we find in the Psalms as well, that same cry. 
they're not crying out and saying, oh, I made a bad choice in my workplace or I made a bad choice in my relationship and this person's mad at me, now will you judge them? No, they're saying, I am suffering for Christ. I am suffering as a Christian. Jesus even says about the innocent, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here Jesus is saying, innocents, the innocent who suffer, especially children, he's saying God will judge them. It would be better for them if they were really never born. It would be better for them if they suffer this terrible death because they will face judgment that is worse even. And an imprecation is just a saying amen to that verse. It's us saying, okay, God, if that's, what, if that's what's right, then I, I trust you. In fact, I ask you to do that in your wisdom, in your justice, in your timing. The imprecations, again, they entrust judgment to God. So this is not a revenge fantasy. You read Psalm 109, and it may at first feel like he's just thinking of all the ways that he wants his enemy to suffer. Seems like it. But what if we read it as a broken-hearted cry to God and say, God, you do this. You do what is right. Notice he's not dreaming about the ways he's going to have his own vengeance. The psalmist here, who, like I said, I ultimately believe is Jesus, he is not saying that he's going to take it in his lifetime, in his, in his experience here. He's saying, God, you will bring it. You will bring it in your timing. They're calling upon God to bring the justice that we cannot bring. Now, this is not to say that we as a church should not be seeking justice and righteousness in our family, in our relationships, in our community. That's not saying that, okay? So don't mishear me as saying we're just calling, to, I'm calling us all to step back and not even get our hands dirty and just, you know, watch as the world burns or something. No. What I'm saying, though, is that two things. We cannot actually bring the kingdom of God ourselves. Only God can bring it. And secondly, there is a huge temptation that the church faces time and time again where we try to bring God's kingdom and we actually compromise in doing so. I think that we see this very much in the political landscape of the U.S., uh, I'm, I'm not from America, I'm actually Australian, believe it or not. I know my accent's all over the place. But when I first moved here a couple of years ago, I was really struck by how political the church was in terms of uh, political parties and, and rallying and voting and all that. It's something that I never experienced in my church upbringing where it was just talked about so often and it was talked about very much as the solution. Like, what are we going to do? Well, we vote. Which I thought was interesting because I came from a country where you had to vote in Australia to a country where it's much more optional, where you have separation of church and state and all the rest, and yet I've never experienced such a politicized church. I think it's going on everywhere now, even more than ever in the recent years. But I say all this because I think it's a real temptation for the church to do what Satan tempted Jesus to do. Satan said, I will give you the kingdom now if you bow your knee to me. And I think that the church has to keep ourselves grounded in Jesus and his coming kingdom not bowing our knee to whoever it may be that promises us the kingdom. This is a temptation that I think the imprecatory Psalms help us resist, is saying, I am not bringing the justice in my lifetime. I'm not bringing the kingdom of God in my lifetime. I, I want to be an instrument of justice, absolutely. But I cannot bring it, we cannot bring it ultimately until Christ returns. So we entrust it to God. Now maybe you ask the question, okay, so all this imprecation, all this cursing, doesn't that seem like we're making the church this little circle and we're saying everyone outside of this circle can go to hell? Isn't that what we're doing? 
What about repentance? Aren't we calling people to repent? Isn't that part of the message of Jesus, that there's forgiveness? And I would say yes. And I think the only way to find an answer with this tension of the imprecations is actually to press in to the idea that Jesus is the answer here. Notice, like I said, if the imprecations are against Jesus' enemies, then that means they're against those who reject salvation. They're against those who ultimately, at least as far as we can see, are resisting Jesus. Jesus, uh, in John 3.36, sorry, John 3.36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Bible is saying that if we do not turn to Christ, we are enemies of God and we are under the curse. But the good news is, if we do turn to Jesus, the curse is not ignored, but the curse has been placed upon Jesus himself. And this is where I think we find the answer, that Jesus actually suffered the imprecation. He not only is the only one who can say it, he is not only the one who receives it as the ultimate judge, but he is the one who suffers it in our place. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So here I think we have the answer, I think, or some of the answer. Usually this is the case. If you're confused, look to Jesus and he somehow brings together everything. But in the imprecations, you have a person who is righteous, who is crying out to God for vindication. I think we find Jesus is the ultimate person and that we pray by being in him, we can pray those things. Jesus then calls out for justice to God. And of course, Jesus will be the one who brings that justice. But then Jesus also calls down this curse. And what's amazing is that he's the one who actually went and stepped in the place of the curse. And he said, those who will receive this gift, I give you the freedom from the curse. You will be spared from it. Like the catechism said, you know, the substitutionary death of Jesus, that he stood in our place. He called down the curse, and then he received it upon himself. So, two final things to say about these imprecations. How do we pray them? What should we do about them? There's so much that I'm still wrestling through, I have to admit. I do think the answer is found through looking at Jesus, but there's also two other things that I I think are helpful to say. The first is that the imprecations are basically just cries of the Lord's Prayer, where we say, your kingdom come. All of the imprecations, if we pray them in Jesus, saying, Jesus, I am righteous through you, Jesus, there are these people who are opposing you and opposing your kingdom, if we pray these prayers, really effectively, we're just saying, your kingdom come. It's just another way of saying that. We might be pointing the finger and saying, your kingdom come in this situation, but we are still saying, your kingdom come. When we say your kingdom come, when we pray that as we did today, we are praying that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. We are praying that those who perpetrate evil and injustice would be stopped. We are saying that those who don't bow the knee to Jesus, that they would bow the knee to Jesus, right? Whether that's through repentance or whether that's through judgment. We are also praying that my sin would be overcome, that my wickedness and impurity would be removed, ultimately. We are praying that God would intervene in any kind of injustice that is going on, that he would bring true righteousness and justice. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about how the Messiah, Jesus, that he alone will, will rule righteously. You know, we have all these rulers in this day and age and this earth who 
best they can do is the best they can do, right? And I don't think half the time they're even doing the best they could do. I don't trust most of our rulers and leaders in this world. But even still, they don't know what is ultimately right, but Jesus does, and he will judge rightly. Also, when we pray your kingdom come, we pray that the innocent and marginalized would be defended. We pray that they would be heard, that their cries would be answered. We pray that the righteous who hold out for Jesus would be vindicated. Right? People look at us as a church and they say, you guys, you got your head in the clouds, you know, you're, you're so concerned with things of heaven that you're no earthly good. In the final day when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying, God, vindicate me. I, I feel, I get it. It seems like I'm putting my hope in something that may or may not happen. And yet when Jesus comes back, he will vindicate us and say, you were right for putting your faith here. When we pray your kingdom come, we pray that Jesus would return and establish his righteous reign on earth, defeat the enemies. So finally, how are the imprecations good for us? I talked about what they are, how we should think about them. I argued hopefully convincingly, that there is a place for them in our, in our life. In fact, there's a place for them to bring us to a healthy relationship with God that may be lacking. Um, but how are they actually good for us? What effect do they have upon us? And here's a few, few reasons, a few things. First of all, we redirect our hope in an eschatological, right, end times, future direction, rather than a temporal one. Yes, we want to fight for justice and righteousness and fairness and equality in this time and age, and we want to be God's instruments of that, yes. But we put our ultimate hope, as the Bible tells us again and again, we put our ultimate hope in Jesus' kingdom that is coming, that he alone will bring. So it redirects our hope. It takes us away from despair or maybe striving on this earth, and it puts it right in the future where Jesus is, where he is coming with his kingdom. Secondly, it actually... What it does to us when we pray this is it affirms the worth of those who are being mistreated rather than some perpetrating some kind of false humility. So I want to explain this a little bit. Uh, I think maybe on a, per, in a personal level we may have this. Uh, like I said, I was raised a Christian, and uh, one of the things that I think that was wrong that I've realized, it took me a while, was that I used to downplay when things were done against me, when someone sinned against me. I had this false sense of humility. Rather than saying, like, yeah, what you did was, was wrong and, and it hurt. Instead of that, I would immediately say, hey, it's no big deal. You know, I just want to get along with everyone. I'm just a Christian. I just want to get along. It's no big deal. You know, even say like, hey, Jesus is taking care of this. But sometimes we can be so quick to, to say it's no big deal that actually what we do is we undermine the worth, we undermine the wrong that has been done against us and the worth that we have in Jesus. Or if we're talking about others, we undermine the worth of those people. Right? When we say that this is no big deal, we're saying that those people, it doesn't really matter that, that, these, that this wickedness is being done to them. So when we pray in precatory prayers, we're actually allowing ourselves to get angry because we are seeing that people are being mistreated. Right? Does it make sense? So we're, we're admitting to ourselves that we, like me, myself, or others are being mistreated and this is wrong. Uh, there was a time where, where I went through this really, really difficult experience and um, I went to a Christian counselor who basically pinpointed that I was not even grieving the, the weight of what was done. And so she kept pressing in and saying like, so what actually was done? And I, I finally admitted and said, yeah, this was wrong. This was actually wrong that these people hurt me like this. And then I immediately got really angry <laughs> for what felt like the first time. And I didn't know what to do with it. 
Um, and what she directed me to do is, of course, as Jesus says, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And what she said is, don't, don't push your anger away. Direct it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus and say, if, these, if this person or these people are not seeking forgiveness, then all you can do is just give it to God and say, God, you'll deal with it in your timing, in your way. I can't carry this anymore. So when we pray imprecations, we're actually doing something healthy by speaking, affirming the worth of the people who are suffering and also directing our anger in a helpful way. We are dealing with our vengeance. We're giving it to God rather than carrying it ourselves or absorbing it. Uh, we have an appropriate outlet for our anger and grief rather than bottling up or ignoring it. Uh, I, I told a story earlier as well this morning that I had some, I have some good friends and my wife has some friends too who actually joined a cult, uh, like a Christian cult. Um, and it's, it's really messy. It took a while for me to realize what was going on here. You know, at first I, I, want, I liked her trying to be open-minded, but it took me a little while to realize, okay, these people, what's happening is they're being pulled away from their Christian communities. They're actually posting big statements online about how their families are evil and wicked. And then they're... Um, like getting married off within the cult and there's stuff that seems to be going on where they're actually using drugs to make these people more suggestible in the early stages of like basically abducting them and keeping them on this like commune life it's just really messy and ugly and when i finally admitted myself okay this is what's going on this is wrong i got really mad right and what do you do what do you do when this is happening when you people you love are being hurt that's for me, that's where I first started to understand where imprecatory psalms have a place, where I was praying, like, the people who are leading this, I don't know where their heart is. Maybe they think they're doing something right. I don't know, but this is just so wrong that I actually was, I felt very free to pray, God, destroy this church. Like, it feels like a weird thing to pray, right? But I was like, God, just destroy it. Just burn it to the ground, you know, and bring your justice. Stop this. Stop what is going on here. And that is going to involve God getting in and, you know, getting his hands dirty, so to speak, to bring this to an end. Whether he does it now or later, I don't know, but there is a place for this, I think. Again, another thing that happens to us when we pray these prayers, we remind ourselves that there is true justice, right? There is such a thing as true justice. I have doubted it recently. <laughs> in recent months and years, I've been doubting justice, but when we pray these prayers, we direct them towards God. And then finally, we really long for God's kingdom. It emphasizes, it, it cements in us this passion and longing and hunger and thirsting that God's kingdom would come on this earth. It allows us to direct our anger and say, God, when will you come? When will you set things right? Uh, you find this in the prayers of the Psalms all the time. They say, how long, O Lord? Will you cast us off? How long are you going to wait? Uh, Justin mentioned this between sermons, but this idea that when God delays his judgment, it's often, very often, at the expense of people who are suffering. Right? The longer he waits, the more the innocent continue to suffer. The more the righteous continue to be slandered. The more Jesus is slandered. The longer, Je the longer God waits. So we should be praying, God, bring your kingdom. So I hope that this has been helpful uh, I felt very much like I was fighting against uh, turning this into a lecture. You know, it can be very easy to turn something like this into a lecture where you're trying to defend something as well as preach about it. But what I really just want to call us all to do as we really turn to a time of response now is I just want us to call us towards embracing this idea that God will bring his justice. He will bring his judgment. And 
asking him, God, how and when should I call for this? What does it look like to do that? I, I hope that this has been helpful this morning. Uh, I think that the answer is in, is in Jesus, that we find that we can pray these prayers in him by identifying with him, by identifying with the, the weak and the lowly. As Jesus says uh, in Matthew 25, that those who did it to the least of these did it to me, right? And so we should be looking to who are those amongst us who are hurting, who are suffering, and we want to identify with them and also fight for them. And how do we fight for them? Well, one of the best ways we can fight for them is through intercession, and that's going to involve entering into their pain and anger and hurt as well. And so I think the imprecations help us do that. So as we transition now to a time of response, let's just pray that God would help us to know how to do this. So let's pray together. Father God, we come to you as, as people who definitely experience hurt. We come to you as people who have been wronged against and people who have even perpetuated violence upon others. Lord, we see so much suffering in this world and it can be hard to know what to do with it. Sometimes we want to bury it. Sometimes we want to ignore it. Sometimes we want to fix it ourselves and sometimes we, we find ourselves bowing our knee to, to someone other than you, compromising our witness, whatever it could be. Lord, I just pray that you would direct us towards imprecations in the right place and right time, that we would funnel our frustration and anger and longing for justice, that we would funnel it towards you, that we would see how you feel, Lord. If this is your word, specifically if this is Jesus' word, I pray that we would be more like you, that we could actually be angry when you are angry, that we could be patient as you are patient, loving as you are loving, but also that we would be mad when you are mad that you would shape us more into the image of your son. So we pray this today and we pray this for the future. In the name of Jesus, amen.